Well, last week we learned from Ecclesiastes chapters 1 and 2 that any foundation for human knowledge, not based on the fear of the triune God, the God who has graciously disclosed himself in the Old and New Testaments, is a false foundation. And from God's perspective, a life built on that false foundation is futile, it's meaningless. Friends, this is where wisdom begins, not science, not our intellect, not philosophy, not our emotions, but the fear of the living God, our reverent awe for God. If you look at your bulletin at the very top, the message of Ecclesiastes, fear God in order to turn a vain, empty life into a meaningful life that will enjoy God's good gifts and to escape the final judgment, which means God must disclose his mind to us. And without the Bible as our revelatory guide, then we're going to be looking at life from an under-the-sun perspective, earthbound, human, finite, contaminated by sin, and constrained by the limitations of our unaided five senses in a futile quest for meaning, joy, contentment, and fulfillment. Like fools, we'll look to satiate the infinite hunger at the center of our souls with stuff. Love, money, sex, power, family, adventure, career, philo- philo- I can't pronounce it. Philanthropic benevolence, philanthropy, benevolence, philanthropic. There, philanthropic benevolence. Whatever it is uh, that we think makes life sing, when only God, only God can fill that void with His infinite glory, because. From the the under-the-sun perspective of the secularist, everything we do in life, everything we accomplish, even the good gifts and pleasures that we enjoy from God's hands, they're all ultimately meaningless, vain, futile, because death swamps over them all. As a culture, we don't talk much about death, do we? Not real death. I mean... We'll make reference to it as an abstract concept, but it's considered to be in poor taste at a dinner party to speak of the real, ugly, brutal realities of death, the dehumanizing pain, the nasty smells, the fear, the drug-induced delirium and hallucinations, ravaged families, and the pitiful lack of dignity. In the West... Death is a sanitized affair. It's kept undercover. It's kept out of sight. No one's elderly relatives die in the care of the family anymore, in the home. They die in hospitals, away from the family before their bodies are whisked off to the undertakers and a closed casket funeral. We don't want to think about death. And when we do think about it, our perception can be sinfully warped, just like our perception of sex Marriage, career, family, every domain of life. It's warped because we don't think of our own death, our own death in real terms. It's like being audited by the government. It's something that happens to other people until it happens to you. Beloved, as Christians, we must escape this mindset that refuses to look at death, to plan for death to live life in light of death, to expect death. Do you want to hear how I was first introduced to death? It was through what's undoubtedly the most tearful death sequence my generation, Generation X, experienced at the movies, the early 80s film, The NeverEnding Story. Have you you seen that, anyone here? You can go home and actually YouTube the clip I'm going to be talking about. I guarantee you, you're going to cry. The protagonist... 
a young boy named Atreyu, is on a magical quest to save the world along with Artax, his beautiful white horse. Near the beginning of their quest, they enter into the Swamps of Sadness. Classic. A place where the more you despair, the more you're sucked down underneath the muck and a slow death by drowning. Atreyu, the boy, he's fine walking through the swamp, but Artax, his beautiful white horse, starts sinking into the mire deeper and deeper. And all the little 80s kids in the theater start losing their minds. You've never heard weeping and wailing like this in a cinema before. The wailing of 200 kids' innocence just being shattered. It's a horrific scene, a scene that traumatized a generation. Atreyu, he desperately struggles to free his beloved horse, but Artax only sinks deeper and deeper into the swamp, uh, its eyes bulging in terror. And I think that was the worst part. Somehow, the, the, the horse's fearful, bulging eyes as the mud creeps up its neck. And it takes a good five minutes for the horse to die. Atreyu screaming and crying and telling Artax he loves him as he's frantically tugging on the reins. And it's made even worse when you realize that Artax, a horse, is being swallowed up somehow by his own despair. That, friends, is the book of Ecclesiastes. Koheleth is drowning the secularist in the swamp of futility. But there are these brief reprieves of life found in our faith in God interspersed throughout the 12 chapters. So for a lot of the book, it's our head under the mud. I'm drowning, I'm drowning. And then there's a brief reprieve for breath coming up. God, God, my faith in God. I'm calling out to God. That's interspersed here and there throughout the book. So this, the question is, how does one get out of the swamp of futility? How do we extricate ourselves from the morass of meaninglessness? How do human beings find purpose in a life that up to this point, we've been told, is a vain treadmill of futility and pain? And of course, brothers and sisters, how do we relate all of this to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, as we saw last week, things change in chapter 2, verse 24. This is one of the breathers where our head comes out of the mud. Uh, and, uh, and this transition, which begins in chapter 2, verse 24, carries over now into chapter 3, the text that we're considering today. In this new section, the teacher tells us that humanity is to enjoy the created realm. And we do that not just by sticking our heads in the sand so we don't see life's futility all around us. No, Kaheleth tells us how such a thing is logically, consistently, biblically possible. We do so by looking beyond our earthbound, under-the-sun, finite perspective to the sovereign God himself. And the life of faith that we have in him a faith that will vindicate us at the final judgment. That's the gist of our sermon today, looking beyond our under-the-sun, finite perspective to the sovereign God himself and the life of faith that we have in him, a faith that will vindicate us on judgment day. But it all begins with that first step. Friend, let me ask, does your journey begin on the path that's laid out in Holy Scripture? Is your foundation for all knowledge, your epistemological bedrock, is it your reverent awe? Is it your fear of the triune God? 
the God who has uh, graciously disclosed himself in the Old and New Testaments and ultimately in the person of his dear son, Jesus Christ. If not, then the first step you took in life was right off a cliff into a swamp of futility, meaninglessness, and the eternal judgment of God. I'm I'm not being dramatic when I say that. That's the whole point of this text. Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. And a convention of wisdom literature, a literary staple, is to present two ways for life. Uh, There's the right way, there's God's way, and it's foolish, worldly antithesis. Why do I bring this up? Because we're going to hear a lot about God's sovereignty today. We're going to hear a lot of how God controls everything. How God has predetermined everything in eternity past. But this doctrine always requires its proper biblical balance in our insisting that human beings are responsible. We're not mindless automatons. We're moral beings who make significant choices. The Bible is very clear. We choose. We rebel. We obey. We believe. We defy. We make decisions. And the sovereign God holds us accountable for all of those actions. Which means, friends, there's a choice set out before each of us today. We choose this day either the vicious cycle of a pointless existence, temporary pleasures, fruitless work, futile wisdom, inevitable death, followed by divine judgment, or we repent of our sin and believe in the gospel. We believe the announcement of the good news of what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin, and in consequence, what he will accomplish in the new heavens and new earth. We choose the truly enjoyable life taken daily from the hand of God and lived out in reverent awe of him, fear of him, and in the obedience of faith. We choose that. A life where God's indwelling spirit regenerates us, indwells us, empowers us to follow our Lord in obedience. A life where we are united to Jesus Christ and ready to face the final judgment because our sin has already been punished in Jesus who died on the cross in our place and rose again. A life where we see ourselves as pilgrims in this fallen world. We're just passing through. This world is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. A life, beloved, where our entire existence and our relation to all of our stuff is lived out from that biblical perspective. The choice is yours. Which will it be? You must decide. Last week's sermon and today's message really serve as the bedrock for everything that's going to follow in this series. I'll be appealing to points I'm making in these opening two sermons again and again. Uh, But today's sermon is entitled, you can see, Secularism, Its Problems, and Its Remedy, Part 2. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 22. And last week, we saw that the secularist problems are the failure of wisdom to satisfy secular life, the failure of pleasure-seeking and self-indulgence to satisfy secular life, and life's ultimate certainty, which is death. That's Those are the problems, all right? Today, we're considering the alternative to secularism or secularism's remedy, which is faith in God. 
And this is what Koheleth teaches us in chapter 3. Fear God, for he is sovereign. Fear God, for he will judge us all at the judgment seat of Christ. I read that the king of Siam once asked his wise men for a proverb that would fit any and every occasion in life, no matter what, the good, the bad, and the ugly, a proverb for everything. And what the wise men came up with, again, working from an under-the-sun perspective, they didn't have divine revelation, uh, was it was right in line with the secularist perspective in Ecclesiastes. You know what they said? This too shall pass. Really think about that. Anything in life, this too shall pass. The American folk rock group, The Birds, with a Y, um, they had a number one hit in 1965 with their cover of Pete Seeger's song, Turn, Turn, Turn. I'm sure you've heard it. Right? To everything, turn, turn, turn. Um, it's in Forrest Gump when Jenny's getting on the bus. Anyway, it was the anthem of the 60s flower children. And the lyrics are lifted almost verbatim from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. You can read along. The song's from the King James Version. So I'm just going to read the King James Version here, but you can follow along in the NIV. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away a time to rend and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. But the thing is, Pete Seeger decontextualized those verses from the overall theme of the book of Ecclesiastes. He took God out of the picture, thus relativizing and corrupting God's message even though he was quoting scripture verbatim. So what we end up with is a song which tells us that the Holocaust, daisies growing in a field, the butchery of Stalin and Chairman Mao, Seinfeld reruns on Netflix, the global economy, the dynamics of family life, famine, whatever. It's all just part of the circle of life. Do you have a serious illness? Has your spouse left you? Or have you been promoted at work? Have your financial investments really paid off? Well, there's a season for everything, don't you know? And, and this must be that thing's season. But just think of what that's saying. It's saying all of life is not controlled by a personal, loving God who is sovereign who controls time, who has a holy morality, and who will judge the world at the end of time in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Instead, that song is saying it's impersonal, capricious, whimsical, blind forces of chance that dictate, that determine life on this planet. Friends, we must see that for what it truly is. That sort of thinking is the rebel yell of the cosmic anarchist who shakes her fist in God's face. Don't get me wrong, I enjoy the music, 
of turn, turn, turn. It's a beautiful sounding song. I like the birds. But the decontextualized message that the song celebrates is a nihilistic anthem of futility and meaninglessness. And anybody who truly believes it, anyone who truly believes, is all down to impersonal, capricious, whimsical, blind forces of chance, and that there's a season for everything, and that that's just that thing's season, that person is going to sink to the bottom of the swamp of futility. Let's be clear. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, is not another way of saying everything is meaningless and relative. This section is one of the book's breathers, a breather which began back in chapter 2, verse 24. So our heads are out of the mud right now. We're still breathing the orthodox, good air of God's encouraging truth. These verses are speaking of God's sovereign providence over all the affairs of life. They're an encouragement for those people who fear the Lord. We who embrace the broader perspective than those living out there under the sun existence. So look at verse 1. There is a time. That is, there is a God-appointed time for everything. And a God-appointed season for every activity under the heavens. So do you see? It's actually it's embracing the entirety of human existence. Nothing transpires under the heavens that escapes God's sovereign control. Nothing. Verse 2, a time to be born and a time to die. Friend, read that verse carefully. Take it to heart. God determines the most momentous events of our existence, a time of our, the time of our birth and the time of our death. Both are in his sovereign hands. We are not the masters of our fate. We are not the captains of our souls. The poet William Ernest Henley, his dates are 1849 to 1903. He was terribly disabled throughout adulthood, eventually dying of pulmonary tuberculosis. And he penned the words of his famous poem, Invictus. It's Latin for unconquered. After years of painful tuberculosis infection of his bones, eventually losing his leg to the disease. And folks, if there was ever an under-the-sun poem of downright unbiblical foolishness, Invictus is it. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit, from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced or cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. The menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Where's the fear of the Lord? Where's the man's awareness of God's final judgment? Where is Jesus, the one who sits at the Father's right hand, who mediates all his Father's sovereignty and to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been granted? I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Fool. 
there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Loved ones, God has a plan that embraces every person on this planet, all our actions, all our experiences, and in all times. And so the beginning of wisdom is to fear, is to reverently awe this God because he is sovereign. Do you know that the Bible teaches us that God is sovereign even over seemingly random things? Uh, Proverbs 16.33, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Everyone in Las Vegas, every decision is from the Lord to throw the dice. The Bible says God is sovereign over life and death. Deuteronomy 32, 39. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal and no one can deliver out of my hand. Do you suffer from a serious illness? Do you have a disability or are you an Olympic athlete? The very picture of health. Exodus 4.11. Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God is sovereign over disabilities and health. He's sovereign over everything. Ephesians 1.11. God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And friends, that's about as absolute a statement as I can imagine. God works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will. Or think of Psalm 115.3. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Daniel 4.35. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? It just isn't possible to employ stronger, plainer language. God is sovereign. Nothing has been left to chance. The movements of all, all the atoms in this room were divinely choreographed in eternity past. Everything is under God's control. His sovereignty is all-encompassing, even in the death of his eternal son. Make no mistake, Jesus' crucifixion was not a big mistake, that a tragedy that caught God off guard. Isaiah 53.10 tells us it was the will of the Lord to crush his son and cause him to suffer and to make his life an offering for sin. Brothers and sisters, the doctrine of a sovereign God who loves his image bearers, who interacts with us, and who allows us to fear him with a real knowledge of who he is because he has disclosed uh, because he has disclosed in the scriptures, this glorious doctrine should be our greatest comfort. Do you take comfort in the doctrine of, the, of the, a God being absolutely sovereign over the, your life and over everything that happens in this universe? Really, thank God for the privilege it is to know that the worldview behind a song like Turn, Turn, Turn 
or any other worldview not based on the revelation of Holy Scripture is meaningless, futile, and morally bankrupt. It's a privilege to know that because billions do not. But by God's sovereign electing grace, the Holy Spirit has taken away your heart of stone and has given you a heart of flesh. He's given you spiritual sight and effectually wooed you to Christ, your Savior. You've believed the truth, and the truth has set you free. Not because you're more spiritually attuned or more inherently lovable than anybody else, but as Romans 9.11 says, that God's sovereign purposes and election might stand. God is sovereign in a purely secularist world from a merely under-the-sun perspective. There is no hope. There is no God who is in control. I don't know how people go to sleep at night not believing that. Human life has no dignity. Human life has no worth. We're just bags of chemicals who have crawled out of the primordial slime, living out our senseless, purposeless existence in a world that itself has no purpose. And if that worldview isn't a recipe for depression, a recipe for suicide, then I don't know what is. In his essay, An Absurd Reasoning, the the greatly admired 20th century philosopher Albert Camus writes this. There is but, and this is actually serious stuff, there is but one truly serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Judging whether life is or is not worth living amounts to answering the fundamental question of philosophy. Ultimately, Camus concludes in his essay that suicide is not legitimate. That is, it's not a desirable thing to do. Camus instead embraces the absurdity of the human condition and finds meaning by becoming, and I quote, a great sensualist for whom sun, sea, sex, football, and theater are the answer to life's absurdity. Thank God that for the believer in Jesus Christ, that is not so. That is not the case. Our life, our existence, once futile, once purposeless, is no longer. Why? Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Brothers and sisters, that's infinitely more than sun, sea, sex, football, and theater. Our life is not sad and absurd. Our life has value as we are in Christ and he is in us. Our life has deep, deep purpose as we seek to glorify our creator God. Look at verse 9. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. The God under whose sovereign appointment all life unfolds, the God we're to fear, New City, is the God who stands outside of time. This is a mind-boggling concept, but the space-time continuum is something God created. God does not exist in time, which means the way that we perceive events in time 
isn't the same way God perceives those same events. Second Peter 3.8, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. And for many people, life is just a meaningless repetition of boring cycles. But the teacher won't have it. What takes place under the sun is actually a reflection of God's sovereign design. A sovereign design with a beginning and with an end. Time is not spinning around like a wheel. History is not a cosmically futile treadmill. History is teleological. That means it has a purpose. It has an end, an end ordained by a sovereign, omnipotent, good, gracious God. And God has set eternity in the human heart. That means our perspective of life's timeline ought to be different from that of a dog or a horse. We're eternal beings living out our lives under the sovereign hand of our creator. That means the cycles, the seasons, the secularist finds tedious and meaningless and despairing. Those same seasons incite the believer to faithfulness and to worship. It instills in the believer a reverent awe for God's majesty and power. It affords us consolation and comfort in times of hardship. Mom, when you're at your wit's end with your kids, think of this. Verse 12, I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Friend, again, let me just ask, this is so important. Does God's sovereign management of every aspect of your existence have that good effect on you? Are you praying that it would? Are you striving in God's power that it would have that effect? Do you revere and have an awesome regard for the God whose good, wise, and perfect plan for your life never fails? Does your faith rest in the bed of God's sovereign omnipotence? Are you cheered, even in the darkest valley, that all through history, God's actions have been effective and complete? Not one of his works has fallen to the ground due to some unanticipated contingency. Does it thrill your heart to know, my God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. And one day, in the future, on Judgment Day, justice, true justice, is going to be executed against all the wickedness of this world. On that final day, the glory of God's holiness will be vindicated in the eyes of every human being and every demon in a universal judgment against sin. That day is surely coming. That day when this old, sinful, fallen world is made new in glorious righteousness. It's coming. That day is sure. That day, as verse 15 says, when God will call the past into account. Which leads us to our second and concluding point. Number two, fear God, for he will judge us, because he will judge us. Verses 16 through 22. And this point takes its cue, of course, from a biblical given. Guys, this isn't up for debate. The teacher's not presenting an apologetic for the doctrine of the final judgment. This is the way life in this fallen world works under the will of a sovereign, holy God. God is holy, and 
his divine perfection and holiness must be vindicated before the eyes of a scoffing universe. And God has chosen that time to be on the day of judgment. He's prepared to wait till that day for that to happen. Here's the setup. All human beings are creatures made in God's image. We're all creatures who have rebelled against our good and holy sovereign. And the just punishment for our treason is death. Death is the wages we earn for our sin. We only live once. There is no such thing as reincarnation. Don't believe it for a second. And after we die, we're judged by Jesus Christ. And we're either cast into hell for eternity with the devil and his angels and punishment for our unrepentant sin, or because we've believed in the sufficiency of Jesus' death and resurrection alone to save us from the penalty of our sin, we will inherit the eternal kingdom prepared for us by God in a new heaven and new earth. And all of human history, as it's controlled by a good, just, holy, sovereign God, is moving toward that day, all of human history. Now, in our Ecclesiastes text, judgment comes first, then death. I want to switch that around, which means we'll uh, save verses 16 and 17 for the very end. Let's look at verses 18 to 21 right now. And to some Christians, these verses are worrying because they appear to deny hope for life after death. Not at all. It's important to remember that the teacher is arguing based on his own insights apart from God's revelation. Right? These verses are from an under-the-sun perspective. Verse 18, I also said to myself, as for human beings, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans, humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaninglessness. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to the dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down to the, into the earth. I mean, without biblical revelation, Peter is right, right? Who's to say that we're better than apes just because we have opposable thumbs? Why should we be afforded the extra dignity, guys, of having our spirits rise to heaven after death? Verse 22, I saw that there is nothing better for people than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them. Now, that question isn't answered at this point, but the context makes it very clear, as does the last and concluding verse of Ecclesiastes. It's God who, in the future, will evaluate life in its totality. And that takes us back to verses 16 to 17 and the theme of judgment. Verse 16, and I saw something else. Again, look at the, the viewpoint. Under the sun, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. If we've been sharing the good news of what God has accomplished in the death and resurrection of his son for sin with others for any length of time, then I'm sure that you've frequently heard the following objection just to the whole scheme. Say, so, all right, Christian, uh, if God is good, if God is all-powerful, then why is there so much wickedness and injustice in the world? 
I almost just picked this at random, but I, I read something last week. There was a couple last week leaving their country club wedding reception on an island in South Carolina, and they were driving uh, away in their golf cart um, like minutes after the reception was over. Everyone was like throwing rice and confetti and stuff. And uh, they were in their golf cart going back to their hotel room on the club grounds. Their lights were on. Uh, when a drunk driver doing 65 miles an hour in a 25-mile zone crashed into them, killing the bride. Eric Hutchinson, the new husband, was left with bleeding in his brain, two broken legs, facial fractures, and broken vertebrae on his back. Now he's physically recovering at home while trying to come to terms with the loss of his bride and doing the unimaginable of planning her funeral. I just picked that at random. If God is good... If God is all-powerful, then why is there so much wickedness and injustice in the world? How can that happen? It's an excellent question. And Christians make a big mistake to recite some flippant proof text from the Bible as if it, oh, that just settles the matter right there. It's extremely difficult. It's one of those issues which needs to be approached from a number of different angles and with a great deal of sensitivity and wisdom if we're going to give any kind of biblically faithful analysis, and even then, we won't have all the answers. But it's true. Everywhere we look, we see injustice. But it's an injustice that's working under the sovereign hand of God. And for the moment, the moment, in this time before Jesus returns in glory, the injustice and wickedness of human beings fulfill certain aspects of God's sovereign purpose. One of them being, and this is just one purpose, but it's important, it provides a massive demonstration on the stage of history of human ignorance regarding our own sinful nature and our own eternal destiny. The human heart is desperately wicked. Romans 3. There is no one righteous. Not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Friends, God is not indifferent to injustice. But for the present, injustice is an under-the-sun monstrosity that reveals the basic character of fallen human beings. It shows the infinite gulf between sinful human beings and our holy creator. It shows us all the need of supernatural transformation. It shows us our need of divine forgiveness. Have you ever noticed how little proportionality there is in this world? The teacher of Ecclesiastes noticed it, and he's rubbing our noses in it. Think of this. As we ate our breakfast this morning, babies are starving to death because tribal warlords are restricting access to food. 
There were missionaries on the field this week who were gang raped and killed. How does that stack up against wicked men and women living in luxury penthouses and yachts? Where's the proportionality? Where's the justice? Which means we either, we cry out with the secularists, futility, meaninglessness. Or we put injustice into its biblical perspective. We look beyond our under-the-sun perspective and really think about what it means for God to be holy, for God to be sovereign, for God to be angry with my sin. The God who stands outside of time. And then we bring in the ultimate categories of the cross and the new heavens and new earth and hell. Because until we consider the vantage point from the end of human history, our view of the justice of God at work in this fallen creation is woefully incomplete. It's decontextualized. It's unbiblical, just like that Pete Seeger song. Assessments of fairness and proportionality based solely on what takes place in this life, in 80 years or whatever. In the here and now, those assessments, they're all premature. They're all misguided. God doesn't work on that kind of a timeline. They're based on a 2 plus 2 equals 5 worldview that needs to be informed by the revelation of New Testament scripture. The cross of Jesus Christ must be brought to bear. Judgment day, heaven and hell, it must. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive what is due them for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Revelation 20, 11 to 15. John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, Jesus. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and everyone was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. All whose names were not found written in the book of life were thrown into the lake of fire. You see, what the teacher is doing in verses 16 and 17 is he is appealing to the end, the very end, the final judgment that has yet to take place, which means we have to take God at his word and walk by faith that justice will prevail but on God's timeline, not on ours. In the meantime, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, if you're a skeptic, there is still opportunity for you to repent. God is holding out his hand to you this morning in a posture of grace, of unmerited favor. He did not bring down instantaneous justice upon your soul The first time you heard the good news of the death of his beloved son for sin and rejected him. 
No, he's given you many opportunities to repent. And once more today, right now, do you realize how blessed you are? If, if God meets sinners, sinners like you and me with mere justice, with raw justice, the result is instantaneous, cataclysmic judgment and eternity in hell at the first instance of sin. But instead, thank God, God meets many sinners in mercy and with his transforming power. And the ultimate result is no longer cataclysmic judgment, but the ecstasy of salvation. My unbelieving friend, God has shown you great mercy this day. He's allowed you to hear a sermon preached from the Bible about his sovereign dominion over every aspect of your life. And he's done that so that you might fear him and live. He's warned you this day of the final judgment that you might fear him and live. How blessed you are. Many, many have never had the privilege that you've enjoyed this day. There is full forgiveness, a free gift. It's yours for the asking. Christ's death is more than sufficient to cleanse a million worlds full of sinners worse than you. Has the sovereign God who will judge you on the last day used the text preached this morning to instill his fear in you? a reverent awe for his name. Pray to him that it would be so. Amen.